the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You are about to listen to American Signpost, a thought that points us back to God. Be warned, doomsday will come. Jesus declared, however, doomsday is not for everyone. Jesus gave a sign to show us the way of escape. In fact, Jesus is that sign. Jesus is God in human form. He said, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus is a signpost. Did not Isaiah prophesy Jesus coming by saying, And this will be a sign for you. The virgin will conceive and bear a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which be interpreted means God with us. American began by settlers who saw the signpost. Thereby, America became a light to the world and a city on a hill. Make no mistake, losing sight of the signpost spells doom. In fact, to no longer see God's signpost makes the Bible into a mere doomsday book. I am Pastor William Boylan. This is an American signpost. Welcome to Signpost. Signpost has been posing one question. How can America's past shed light on her future? Join Signpost host, Pastor William Boylan, and his son, author Andrew Boylan, as they visit America's foundation to understand better what's happening in the world today. Get ready to hear about America's beginnings, as you have probably never heard before. Now, let's join Signpost. Welcome to Signpost. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Andrew Boylan. I'm a writer here with my dad. Uh, Pastor Boylan. Good to be here, Andrew. This is, uh, I'm looking forward to this. I think we're going to, in some ways, follow up on last week's. Maybe you take a different turn, but the same kind of idea of this supernatural God who gets involved in our lives, and we can know it. In fact, he gives us signs, signposts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to this episode, too. I, as we've gone through a week and thinking about prayer, um, we're going to continue on with what we have been talking about and talking about some more uh, miraculous things. Um, but as we've been thinking about it, I want to take a moment as um, to anyone who's listening, if you are interested in more prayer for the nation and being a part of what is happening here, as we think about praying that on the radio, they're looking for sponsors to keep, to do this event. Um, so if you're a business leader or somebody who has a heart to see, you know, this is the business channel in BIX in faith and business and, and a heart for where the nation's going. You, know, you might think about um, sponsoring one of the pastors who's going to be praying on air um, for the over the next time. Um, so but going right into this, uh, as you mentioned, um, go, at the at the top of the show, we wanted to talk about the a miraculous season that you went through at Byfield, um, Dad, and how that happened and how, how you know, what roles prayer played in that. And I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about some of these events that took place early on um, in your ministry that really solidified your understanding of how God worked, um, how God works in our lives and, and in showing us how to be faithful to the plan that he set forth for us. Um, so let's um, delve right in and tell me some of the things that you were thinking about. Well, uh, it's, it's probably wise for the listener to know uh, this about me because it helped contextualize and and help you to see how I saw these things we're going to talk about, these miraculous happenings. <clears throat> I was born uh, just before the uh, First World War. Uh, well, actually, the First World War began on September 1st. I was born 72 days later or thereabouts. So... I was born at the end of the Depression and the beginning of World War II. And by the time I was coming into the uh, teenage years, I would say that our country, especially in our school systems, was pretty much what I would call anti-supernatural. Mm. The scientific revolution that we had had, which was wonderful. I mean, the inventions were great. Uh, uh, my mother did not uh, labor over a scrub board like my great-grandmother. Uh, she had a washing machine. Uh, we Yes, when I was very little, the Iceman came with the ice, but it wasn't too long before we had an actual refrigerator. Mm -hmm. I mean, the world was changing and modernizing and uh, the like. 
Uh, and as we learned more and more about how the world worked and used it better and better and were more and more modern and sophisticated, uh, the downside of that was we got the impression as a, as a culture that we had all the answers to. It mm-hmm. was only a matter of time. Time was the only difficulty for us. We had all, we had all knowledge uh, available to us and uh, we had the minds to grasp it and delight. And I was really influenced by that growing up. You can't help me. I'm a teenager, and uh, this was the attitude in school. This was the attitude in my home, uh, not in that sophisticated way, but it was, it was like osmosis. And I would say that uh, it was really true in the attitude of the church. Mm. The pastor in the pulpit uh, didn't shy away from correcting the Bible uh, or having some co- uh, alternative explanation for the bir- miracles in there. Right. And so... When I uh, was in the Army and just before I became a Christian, I was probably uh, on board with all of that. I didn't expect miracles, not real miracles, to happen. I didn't, I didn't expect the sun to stop in the sky. I didn't uh, expect, uh, uh, well, you name them, if they were really outstanding, impossible miracles, I... You didn't uh, expect suffered. God to part the Ipswich River? <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so... So when uh, I had the greatest miracle of all happen to me, my nature changed. I passed from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, who I didn't believe existed before that, to God. All of this was astounding, and my mind began to open, and my eyes particularly began to open as to reality, true reality. Now, it took a long time and a lot of study and uh, reading the Bible in particular to, to get a good handle on these things. But uh, but I had entered into a different world, and I had entered into the world where miracles happened. They mm-hmm. were expected, uh, and not on a daily basis in the sense of, uh, again, uh, you know, something like raising the dead. But, but as I began to watch life, I began to realize that there was somebody in charge of it and that coincidences were too coincidental to be only coincidences. Mm-hmm. They were really providential happenings mm-hmm. and all of that. So I really somehow something got a hold of me or someone got a hold of me uh, and convinced me that uh, God was able to be my father in the same way my earthly father had been my father. When I was a little boy growing up, uh, I didn't think much about the family income. I wasn't brought into discussions on the budget. Mm. I just expected the meal to be on the table. I expected to be my bed to be made. I expected what little kids expect. Right. I, I, I spent my time uh, playing with friends and all, and those were not my worries. And I didn't need to worry because I had a father who worked, and I had a mother who uh, worked in the home and all of that. And now I'm in a new world. I'm in a world, and I understand that I have a heavenly father. Mm. I have a father who loves me more than my earthly father ever had the ability to, who cared more about me than both my parents ever could have cared for me, and I awakened to that and began to really try to put my life in order in the light of that truth. I I wanted him to be shown, him being my Heavenly Father and my older brother, Jesus Christ. I wanted them to show up in my life. Mm. I wanted to be what God wanted me to be, and that was uh, an instrument, so to say, in his hand, that he could make himself known through me. Mm. And the only way that connection could be established is by building up my faith. Uh, apart from faith, we can do nothing, the Scripture says. And I and I really uh, believe that. Well, the day came when I was uh, called and believed I was called to pastor a church. And the church I was called to pastor had been pretty much undermined by that whole scientific revolution. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll call it that way. Uh, it, 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 I, well, I'm staggering. Uh, I'm, I'm stuttering because I don't know what to say first. But I, I think if you've been in churches like the one I was uh, called to or when I grew up in, uh, you would have people say, and maybe you've said it yourself, uh, you know, well, we have to be practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have to be responsible. Uh, we have, uh, But what that usually meant was we can't, really trust God in the way the Bible says. 
Right. In other words, it, 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 we've got to invest our funds. We've got to raise our monies. We've got to we've got to do what the local banker does downtown. Right. That's re- responsible. That's practical. That's, right. And I was just enough of a Christian to believe. No, I'm not going to be practical. Mm-hmm. And I, I will be responsible, but that doesn't mean I'm responsible to be God. I'm responsible to be God's child mm. and an instrument in his hand and a person who has his image to bear. Therefore, I'm going to try to show God off for who he is by the way I live. Mm. the simplest way I can put it. And uh, where where the churches that our church belongs to in terms of the denomination— uh, seems to have fallen down pretty regularly. And I'm going to guess that if you're in a Methodist church or an Episcopal church or a congregational church like ours, I, I'm going to expect that maybe your your church situation and your church has suffered the same kind of temptations that the one I, I came to serve was, was uh, living under. And that was that they had to raise the funds to support and provide for the church. Well, it hadn't worked. It hadn't worked for a lot of years because they hadn't met the budget. The church had declined. Uh, it was down to pretty low ebb when they called me. I was still in school, the, in seminary, uh, and I had no experience, and I, I came cheap. <laughs> you didn't have to pay me a wage. You would have had to pay a person who had a long and successful career, and you wanted them to come on and uh, and better your church because of their expertise. No, I was I was a student. I was beginning. I was just starting out. And what I was going to be asked at the first annual meeting, God knew, but I didn't. I, I you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a soothsayer. Mm. I don't know what the future is going to hold. But God knew what I what I was going to be asked, and He knew what I want. He wanted me to answer, mm. and He set me up for it. So uh, my wife and I, Miriam and I, married in 1966, and we made an agreement. We made an agreement together that uh, we would trust the Lord in our own lives for our provision. Mm. Me, we wouldn't work. It didn't mean that she didn't have a job. It didn't mean that we'd be irresponsible. It just means that behind it and beneath it, we would take our jobs as a gift from God. We would consider everything as coming ultimately, mm. in the last analysis, from his hand. And uh, he put that to the test in 1968. We've been married two years. Uh, my wife was a teacher in Raleigh, Massachusetts. She came home uh, one evening and said, wow, we've got a real, uh, we had an awful tragedy happen. One of my teachers, my fellow teachers, was burned out in the night. A fire started in the house. They all got out there safe, but she lost everything. Hmm. And they're in terrible straits. And uh, she explained the whole thing, and it was a real, real tragedy. And she looked at me across the table and said, what are we going to do? And I I said to her, well, we certainly have to help. And she said, I was hoping you'd say that. Mm. And uh, she said, what do you think we should give them? And I said, I really don't know. Why don't you do this? Why don't you go back tomorrow when you go to school, see if you can get her aside and ask her what she needs? Well, she said, yeah, good idea. So she came back the next night, and she had a little miraculous no it was yes it was yeah i, I don't want to over to work work the word miraculous but i think this was in a sense a, a part of the whole miraculous scheme she said would you believe it we sat down at the teacher's table and we do this all the time and have uh, lunch together but this particular day everybody but i won't name the lady but everybody but that woman got up and left the table and he she said it was just she and i sitting there and i said uh i'll call her sally not her real name. She said, Sally, what do you really need? And Sally said, if we had $500, now she had two or three children and a husband, and she said, if we had $500, it, it would help us to get re, you know, restarted. Yeah. And we looked at each other. We had plans to do something together, and we had saved $500. Mm. Now, anybody listening who's younger will not realize what $500 was to us back then. Right. It was five weeks' pay mm-hmm. for a teacher. <laughs> and my wife, five weeks' pay. If you take your own week's pay now and you multiply it by five, you'll get how it felt. Right. Or, or if you live month to month, I mean, you certainly know that, like, you can't just hand out 
your entire, I mean, your rent and bills and everything. I mean, it takes a while to accumulate a month, almost a month and a half's worth of wages. I mean, I, maybe not for, you know, but depending on where you are in the yeah. income income bracket, yeah, that's a it's a significant amount of money. Yeah, to have saved up and and to 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 figure out, you know, to sacrifice. Yeah. Well, the hottest thing for us was that this money was really owed in this sense. Uh, we had made an agreement. I had made an agreement to be a team leader on a tour. Mm. And I didn't have to pay because I was a team leader, but my wife was going to have to pay. And I wasn't intending to go two years into marriage without her on this tour. Right. And that was so that was really the question. Do we give this $500 or what do we do? And we agreed. I wasn't taking anything from her. And I said, okay, I'm agreed. Let's let's help this family. They're in desperate straits. So she went to the bank, um, and she withdrew our $500. And she handed her a check to the lady uh, at school. Mm. And we cannot tell you to this day how the money came back. We never went to anybody. We never had a fundraiser. We didn't tell our parents. We didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And somehow, when the money was needed, at the time it was needed, the money came back. It was there. Now, we don't know the future, so I didn't know there was more to this than met the eye, but there certainly was. Now, it is the end of that same year, 1976. Uh, while I was in school, in seminary, three other men and myself, one ma- two married and one not, uh, three of us total were married and one not, uh, re- had a ministry on the North Shore of Boston, and we called it North Shore Teens. Mm. And one of the men who had two children, the other two of us were married but without children, uh, uh, were heading to Christmas. And uh, my wife asked the wife uh, if they were excited about or looking forward to Christmas. And the wife said, uh, not really. We're really strapped and we don't know how we're going to presents to the kids. And these were probably 10-year-olds. The girl might have been 12 and the boy 10. And that was... uh, that was uh, uh, something that, in my wife's case, really struck her hot. True, sure did. And uh, so she came back home, and again, we're at the dinner table, and she's telling me this story about the, this couple uh, really not desperate. They would have survived it, but they were really hurting. They didn't want to have their kids walk down in the morning and see a bare uh, mm-hmm. floor beneath the Christmas tree. Right. Yeah. So... Uh, she she wanted to buy the presents. I said, now, this was not sacrificial. This was not sacrificial. I just want to take a second just to remind listeners that you're um, listening to Signposts this afternoon on this Saturday afternoon. And if you're – and we've been talking about the miraculous season um, that my dad experienced early on in his ministry, um, some groundwork that was laid – and as we talk about that, I do want to remind people that you can go to PastorBoylan.com to find out more about signposts. That's PastorBoylan.com. And um, you can come on and write write us a little message. Tell us um, anything that you want, essentially. But, but, I mean, as a direct call to action, if you have a miraculous season in your life, we'd love to hear about it. And um, But as we were talking, you, you were talking, Dad, about the second time that a family had really fallen on hard times and needed some financial assistance, you know, as much as faith, but also, but also financial, direct financial assistance. And you were sort of early on and you were sort of bootstrapping life and uh, in those early days. Um, And, but you were living by faith and, and there's a number of things I want to talk about, and I think we'll talk about in the next half hour. But I want to hear more about the story before we go delve into some aspects that I was thinking about as you were talking about it. So um, if you want to keep um, continue to tell me some of these things that were happening. Yes. Well, it really was a setup now that we always oh, discovered it soon after by being called to the church. It was a setup uh, for what we were going to face in the life of the church as pastor and wife. Mm. Now, okay, so we've got this uh, family. They have a real problem in their hands because they don't have the money. It was before plastic was out, and you could just use a credit card to put yourself in debt. You used real money in those days, and uh, they just didn't see how they were going to provide gifts for their children. And my wife got wind of it because she asked, the other wife, uh, 
you know, about Christmas, about what she anticipated, and the mm-hmm. wife was really stressed out because this was going to be an awful Christmas. So my wife, my wife came back at the dinner table, and we talked again, and she said, I'd like to give the, them the money for the gifts. Do you mind? And I said, well, on one condition. If it comes from them, fine, or if it comes from Santa Claus, that's fine, as long as it doesn't come from us. Mm-hmm. I said, if it doesn't come from us, I'm happy for you to do that. Well, she, of course, uh, being kind-hearted and generous to a fault, rushed uh, right over to tell the couple that uh, we would like to do that. Well, it's embarrassing, and they they weren't uh, really anxious, but they were in a difficult place, and we were good friends, and they, they agreed. So my wife said, give me a list of what the kids have asked for, and uh, uh, I think the other wife thought we'd choose from it, and I thought so too, but that's not my wife's character. Uh, so uh, she got the list, and she went and bought the list. And it was quite a bit of money for those days, but we weren't, we weren't, uh, it wasn't money we owed. It was money we weren't throwing our money away, but we could afford it at the same time. And so she bought the gifts and gave them the gifts for them to wrap and give, as I say, from either themselves, that's fine, Santa Claus, that's fine, just not from us. And they agreed. So that was probably early uh, or midpoint of December. Now it's the Sunday before Christmas, and I was doing what they call field work, which is just practical work at one of the churches out uh, off 128. And uh, in the years I had been there, it's my third year there, and I knew the man who preceded me. So really for a number of years, uh, it had been the practice of the church to ask the pastor to come up at the evening service, and they would give him an envelope, which was kind of a Christmas bonus. Uh, this year, un- unusually, they called us both up. And it was nice. They gave us both an envelope. And uh, and so on the way home, we're driving home. We lived in Hamilton in those days. We're driving down 128, and my wife opened the envelope. And I think she would have expected, and I would have expected, not for any great reason, that it probably was a check in there. But it wasn't. It was money, uh, bills and, ca- and loose cash, loose coins. And so she added it all up. And she said, that number rings a bell. And so... Uh, again, given uh, who my wife is, she has every receipt she's ever gotten since, I think, fifth grade in grade school. <laughs> she has a lot of receipts in that purse. So she went through the purse, and she found the receipt for the, for the gifts. Mm. And would you believe that the money in the envelope matched to the penny the gifts we had given, wow. the money for the gifts? So both of us thought that's beyond coincidence. Right. Uh, the Lord is sending a message. And we just took it at the time. How else could you take it? It's just God being good. But then came the, a call to the Byfield Parish Church. Mm-hmm. And we were called there. At, well, we were we were really approached at the end of that 1968 period. This, mm-hmm. this that I'm telling you right now, because the timing is important, this uh, – Seventy plus dollars that we had spent on the gifts uh, came back in between the time that the Byfield Parish Church had heard me preach at at the church where I was serving. To, mm. They were on a search for a pastor, and January when they actually called me to be the pastor of the church. This this event was right in the middle. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of like a signature moment for. As a, and I didn't know it at the time. You know, you don't know these things when they happen. It's when right. God shows you what he did as you look back. Absolutely. And that's what that's what it was. So here we were in 1969, new pastors at a church that had fallen on pretty hard times. It had not met budgets. Uh, people were not much interested in what was happening at the church. They did not seem to be thoroughly excited with the messages that had been preached to them. There was one service that year, 1969, when only one person came to church for the worship service. Yeah, I remember those stories, and it's amazing <laughs> to me when I to think back and think about how much one, how much it grew, and how much happened over those over those years. Because that was before I was born, but certainly as I went in to go, you know, from one person. In the span of what four or five or seven years to to having two services and you know yeah. and and having people who couldn't fit into those two services and having to build a new building it's always amazing to me when I think that you can that you, you know that you never know where you're at how you know it, it's got to make you wonder what am I you know what do you do I, I I just as a human being like not you know being real that like you know what am I doing there's one person in my church and I often think about that like how how was that for you in those early days 
you know, to, 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 to get, to prepare and do the due diligence of preparing a sermon and reading and studying to deliver it to one person. <laughs> now, mind you, that did not happen every Sunday, but it was no, one, course, one Sunday. But it is, but yeah, it's, an, it, it is happen. a great exemplifier of, of what God yeah. can do with faith. You know, you say, no, this is what I've been called to do. If it's one person, if it's a, if it's an empty church, this is, God told me to be at Byfield and I'm going to be there. No, it was 10 years between that summer mm-hmm. when that one person came till 79 when we were now talking about what are we going to do to fit the people in. Right. Yeah. So that, that was. No, that's a and, remarkable. And what we're talking about and uh, on this particular episode, and I think we should talk more about it as time goes on, but what I've called the miraculous season was key to much of it. That, Absolutely. That, what we're talking about and particularly uh, this matter of the miraculous provision that God wants to make in order to manifest himself among his peoples. I want to take a pause and remind people to visit us at PastorBoylan.com to find out more about signposts. I'll be at the uh, Barnes & Noble Earls in Burlington on the 23rd of September, hosting a panel discussion on young adult writing, publishing, and it'll be part of Teen Reading Week, and there'll be a lot of events throughout the day. So if you have young people in your family or if you're in college and you're looking for something to do on the 23rd, um, stop by the Millbury Barnes and Nobles. They'll be giving away prizes and having trivia games and um, talking about books and it'll, it'll be a fun uh, weekend. So come on by. We've been talking in the first half hour about the miraculous season that my dad, my co-host and dad, pastor Boylan experienced at Byfield parish church in, um, Byfield, Massachusetts, when I was a kid, and now Georgetown, Massachusetts, when they moved into a new church. And some of these stories are the groundwork to that that transition into a new building and into a new into a new parish. And I do want to take a moment to just remind people to come visit us at pastorboylan.com and uh, talk and write to us. Tell us about a miraculous season that you might have experienced in your life, a time when God really showed himself in a way that undergirded your faith for the struggles that are ahead, because we all go through struggles. And that's part of what our, our show is about. Part of our mission is to be as transparent as possible with our with our faith and with our walk, to so people know and can see that other people go through struggles too, and that they're not alone. And one of these, you know, and some of what we've been talking about in these stories, these aren't, these aren't necessarily the struggle moments. These are sort of the moments where that we've talked about in this particular episode um, are the miraculous moments where God has shown his hand in a manifest way, in a real way. Um, And he does that, I believe, and I, and you can confirm for me, Dad, in your study and your experience over these years, you have far more than I have, that he does that to remind us when we it is hard that he's there to have shown it, to show himself in real ways so that we can have faith when we need it most. And I want to really go back into that story, but but one thing I want to touch on because I think it's an important piece of the puzzle as we look at what signpost is. And we look at, you know, and, and for me, things that are really fascinating to me as uh, as a as a Christian and as somebody who, um, you know, watched your ministry from an intimate level as a son, but was on the outskirts because I wasn't one of the men in the church or the women in the church who were uh, who the adults and were participatory. And, and one of the things that you talked about in that first half hour um, about trying to convey faith and to, you know, to, or, or I don't know if they were deacons or, or trustees or whomever deal with the money and things like that and the mechanics of the way the church was working in those days. And you talked about, you know, that you wanted, you know, to help them see faith. And I was thinking about the people who are in charge of money would normally be banker. And you were saying how we, you didn't want to treat the church like a bank, you know, as a banker would. And of course, the person who's going to step up into those kind of roles and the people that you're going to talk to are going to be the bankers because I didn't, naturally, if you're looking for a volunteer, those are going to be step up. Like if somebody is asking when I worked for um, a, a, a ministry and a mission, 
I didn't step up when people wanted money advice because I have none to give. But if, if they needed help, you know, creative help or, or somebody to write some or some copy for the website or or to write a letter, you know, to to, um, to supporters or to tell the story of, you know, uh, some young uh, person who who had their life transformed by through the, through that mission. Um, I would be the first one they would go to, and how do you, you know, how do you tell that story? And and I would and I would spend time doing that. So I'm um, I'm imagine. So I had a very clear, and I don't have a very clear question, except that I I wanted to pause for a moment and just think about and 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 talk just and talk about what it was like to be with those guys who I can imagine were either bankers or some CEO or some financial advisor who would be like. You know, well, we have, you know, this much in giving and we need to, like, you know, allocate it in this way and that and save it. So there's some accrued interest, you know, perhaps on 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 things that we don't need to spend immediately on expenditures and capital expenses versus, you know, daily expenses and all those all those um those things that are discussed in, in situations like that. And, and you can tell that I'm not a money person just by the way I articulated all that. But what fascinates me is to stand in those moments and to talk to those people and tell them this is what their entire work life certainly is built on. But I imagine that they had a predisposition to that. So some aspect of their mindset and life was built around those ideas. And to tell them, hey, hey, let's have faith in, in that God will give it to us the next time we need it. And how do we use it now to glorify him because he gave it to us to use? And what were those moments like <laughs> to sort of, you know, and, and 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 more than just what were those moments like for you? But but for the for the men, because I've heard stories over, now that I am an adult of people saying like, you know, you're you know, you as their as their pastor showed them things that they never would have otherwise had experienced. And I'm not going to say anybody's name, of course, but I, but I remember dramatically, you know, them, you know, wanting to help out with something that we were doing and, and him taking a moment and stepping aside and being like, I just want you to know, you know, that I had never thought these ways until, you know, I experienced it and I witnessed in your dad's faith, you know, things that passed on to me. And, you know, and so you were part of those and being a part and being in those early experiences. I'm just I'm fascinated by how ministries grow and and your ministry in particular. Um, well, you hit the nail right straight on the head, because that's precisely what happens to churches. The the uh, the temptation in our in our life period as Christians, too, and as churches is to fall back on what is safe and what is seeable. It's not a word, but you know we want we want to walk by sight. We don't want to walk by faith uh, when things are serious. I mean, if things are just uh, oh, I don't know how to express this myself. But when things don't really count for much and it's kind of a challenge and maybe even fun to walk by faith. But when the chips are down and when you may have to close the doors of a church or you may have to sell a property, uh, mm-hmm. that's a different story. And then to walk by faith when it looks like it's doomsday. And you're telling them, no, it's, it's the beginning of a whole new world, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. Well, let me go back to that story in this way, just to set it up again, not to tell it again, but, uh, we were, we were with a couple at the, uh, seminary level, and we were doing a, a youth ministry in the North Shore of Boston, and, and Boston, some of the towns, Peabody, Danvers, uh, Beverly, Ipswich, and, um, uh, and one of the couples had children, just one of them, and they were really strapped for money and were not going to be able to provide Christmas gifts. And my wife uh, found that out from the wife, the mother, and wanted us to do it. And I agreed on the proviso that they didn't come from us. That's the gist of the story. So what happened was uh, we... we uh, took the list that the kids wanted. My wife bought the list. And then at the church where I was serving in my practical work, they invited me up to give me uh, a gift uh, of money at Christmas time. And when it, tr- it turned out to be the exact amount of money, we spent on the gifts. Mm. And it was wonderful. And that's as much as you could make of it. But we discovered there was more than met the eye. And so now we were called at uh, in January 1969 to pastor the Byfield Parish Church. And the Byfield Parish church was struggling. Uh, they were borrowing money in the summer to get through the year, and then they were trying to pay it back in the winter. They were not meeting the 
budget uh, week by week. And when things would go really down low, they would have to rob Peter to pay Paul. Mm-hmm. And the one budget they always took from and very rarely had any money left to do anything with it was the missions budget. Mm-hmm. That was the budget we didn't owe. We didn't have to pay. We had to pay the oil man. We had to pay uh, bills. You had to pay the pasta. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have to send the money to missions. That was voluntary. So mm-hmm. that missions money hardly ever got sent because there was never enough money to go the full length of the budget or to pay Interesting. Yeah. So now that was, so we went through the summer of 69, and it was that summer when we actually had only one person show up to worship. And by the way, not to be too funny, but uh, do you flip a coin to who takes up the collection when you only have one parishioner <laughs> <laughs> parishion of the pastor and the organist? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. But then uh, it's the next annual meeting. Now, we are congregationalists. That means the congregation decides everything, ultimately. Mm. You have committees. You have people in charge in the sense that they are responsible to get the properties up, maybe the trustees, or to oversee the worship, and they're the deacons, uh, or the music committee looks at the music. But ultimately, decisions, especially money decisions, are made by the whole congregation. Mm. Uh, We put out an agenda. We put out a budget. We talk about it, and eventually vote on it. And so it's now January, third Friday in January of 1970. It was uh, a regular stated meeting of the church, the annual meeting of the church, and we got to the budget. Mm. And the budget had not been met the year before, and now another budget proposal was put forward, and they're trying to find a way to have some kind of a fundraiser to be sure that they didn't fall short if they could possibly help it in this budget. Mm. And they had had fairs, and they had had auctions and done different things to try to buttress or to you know, to add to the budget. Mm. But people were tired. They were tired. And you could feel it around the room. And this discussion went around the room, and nobody seemed to want to do anything. They were, they were just exhausted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, one of the ladies stood up and thought she had the answer, and she said, oh, let's have a fearless fair. What's a fearless fair? A fearless fair is where you don't do anything. Everybody <laughs> just gives what they would have given if there was a fair. <laughs> and nobody was even had enough energy to collect the money. <laughs> it was really a low ebb in the life of the church. And I've been a pastor now for one year, and not really for one year, because I was still in school, so they didn't really have me start until uh, May of 1969. So I really been a pastor for about eight months. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after this went about the third time around the room, the moderator of the meeting uh, said, perhaps we should hear from our pastor. <laughs> so I stood up and said, I've I've been listening to the conversation, and it's, it's very serious. It's certainly serious to me, and money counts with God. Uh, he tells us what to do and not to do with our money, so he's interested. I just, you know, I can't remember everything I said, but it was generally, I didn't want to make light of it. Like, it didn't matter. That's not right. true. But I said, I'll make a recommendation. Mm-hmm. My recommendation is for the next year, one year, that's all I said. I didn't say forever. I just said, for, for one year, let's agree at this meeting that we will not mention money again. Mm. That all we will do is seek to discern God's mind as to what's the mission he's called us to do. And then he says he'll provide for us to do what he wants us to do. Mm. And if he doesn't, then we won't tell other people to trust him either. Mm. Well, I, I say this as a exaggeration, but after the finance committee got done rolling around the floor laughing and got back in their seats, uh-huh. <laughs> but they actually did nudge one another and smile. Who have we hired? You know, not consider money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how how do you think you're going to? What do you think we're going to do? You know, I could see, I could read their minds. Yep. You know, this man is naive. But what were they going to do? Nobody's going to do anything, and it wasn't. Right. There weren't many options, and so they voted to do nothing. Right, money wise. They voted not to have a fairless fair. No fair, no nothing. (laughs) And we met the budget that year. The budget came in. And the budget came in regularly for the next uh, four years, I'd say. In 1975 was the first year we missed the budget. Hmm. And there were reasons. uh, And uh, we missed it by $3,000. And now our budget's up around thirty. When I came, it was $16,000 a year. Mm. And now it's up around thirty, and we missed it by three thousand, and uh, and 
there were people there who were saying, oh, well, he's had a, meaning me, had a string of good luck, but <laughs> his luck's run out. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, again, I, Urge the church to say no. We we made a we we're on a principle. Let's pass the budget that we're proposing, uh, even though there's a shortfall the year before. Uh, we can't. We don't know why, and maybe we're not supposed to. But let's trust the Lord. He's been mm-hmm. good for four years, and I think he's good to his word the next year too. Well. They really, in these big meetings, or at least a full church meeting, there's not a lot of chance to change a lot because you'd be there for a month of Sundays trying to change the work that's been right. done to present whatever it is, whether it's music or budget or anything. Yeah. So uh, we had a long talk, I won't say that, but we finally passed the budget. with have already missed the budget the year before by $3,000. Now, that mm-hmm. was Friday night. Monday morning, I went and got the mail. There was no secretary. I was doing everything in those days. And uh, there was a letter in there from a law office down in Brockton. I opened the letter, and and here in the letter was a check for $3,000. And I had a letter, and Mrs. Whoever, uh, nobody that we knew or that we thought knew us, had left her youngest son at Governor Dummer Academy. Mm. And, and Byfield is in the 30s. And we're talking in 1969-70, yeah. 40 years before. <clears throat> uh, you could kind of tell by the letter that this woman didn't know whether she had left her youngest in Indian country and he might not survive up here. <laughs> because for somebody down in the Boston area, uh, in those days, Byfield looked like it, it had just been found by the Puritans. Uh, it was pretty remote. Yeah. And apparently in her feelings and her struggle with leaving her young son to these these uh, backwoodsmen now here in Byfield, uh, she drove by the Byfield Parish Church. Mm. And on an impulse, she wrote the Byfield Parish Church into her will for $3,000. Never darkened the door of our church that we know of, never did more than drive by it after that experience. And her will, she died, and her will was probated and distributed on the weekend of our shortfall. Yeah, I know. That's an incredible story. Well, it certainly said to us, I guess the Lord is faithful. Exactly. Yeah. 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 There's so, I've, I've shot down coincidence over and over, but it can't be a coincidence. Uh, and, yeah, not when it's so yeah. specific. And uh, in 1984, we voted to build a new meeting house because we couldn't handle the numbers. Uh, in 1988, we opened the meeting house. We paid $2 million. We paid off that. Uh, we, we First of all, 800000 was given up front. Mm. Uh, and then we had to borrow some, but we paid it back six years in advance. Mm. Uh, and we never had, and this is important, Andrew, we never had any fundraising as such. Mm. But we expect we urge people in the church to give as, as God led them to give. Mm. Uh, you ask the Lord and give what he tells you to give. We may know we had no financial plan. We had no scheme. Uh, we simply put it before the church body to pray and give and think about the ministries and think about the mission. And uh, when I stepped down uh, not long ago from the senior pastor position, uh, our budgets had run over half a million dollars for the operating budget for 20 years. Mm. And our missions budget was always separate. We could not tap that mission budget to buy oil. Yep. That was missionaries, and that's where it went, no matter what happened to us as a church. And that budget alone would uh, often rise up to $100,000. And we did not we did not miss a payment on the building, uh, the money that we had to borrow. Uh, it's just it was just a miraculous right. thirty fifty years. Uh, it, it was and uh, but and can I can I add to that? Have I got time? Cause, oh yes. Oh, as time went on, God began to show me some of the really important reasons for him to do all of this among us. He wanted to make himself known uh, to us as well as to the world. I mean, we were in the business, as all churches are, making Christ known, lifting Mm. him up. 
We are holding him forth as the Savior of the world. We are telling the world. We have discovered that it's true. He is God the Son. He isn't just one of us. He became one of us. He he, he came to bear our sins in his body on the tree. He he did this as an act of compassion, of mercy, and, and, and to glorify his Father mm-hmm. by obeying him no matter what it cost him, all of that. Sure, we're in, that's what we're about as a church. We're to bring the, forth the gospel of God uh, by word and deed. Mm. Uh, but when you when you look at this matter of provision, it's to be noted that this is so foundational. And and I'm saying this. I maybe some other pastors listening to me, or church leaders are listening to us. Yes. Uh, be, and and I urge you to think about this. Uh, I don't know where your finances are. I don't know how you deal with finances, and uh, uh, you know all of that. But let me let me encourage you to think about this. The gospel of God began in Eden. There's no doubt about it. The uh, seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Right. That was a promise. Mm-hmm. God's kept that promise. But he's narrowed it down as time goes on. It narrowed down to the family of Noah, who survived the flood. It narrowed down to one man eventually. His name was Abraham. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, it was 4,000 years ago to us, 2,000 years before Jesus was born. At and he promised to bless the whole world to Abraham. He promised that Abraham would be his instrument on earth to bless every family on earth. It's in chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, but Abraham understood that that would be his family line, not him individually, but his family line would spread out and develop, and they would be a blessing to the people of the earth. And uh, you can't have a family line developed till you have a child. you got to mm. start somewhere. And they had no child. And God gave him the promise, but he didn't give him the child. Mm-hmm. And if you know your Bible, you know that uh, it went 25 years, not 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 a couple of months. Uh, for 25 years, Abraham's waiting for the boy, for the child. And I'm sure he was waiting for a son. And finally, the son, the son is born. And they name him Isaac because particularly Sarah, the wife, thought this was so ridiculous. She laughed at the idea that when she finally gets her 90s, she's going to have a baby. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when she did have the baby, they named him Laughter because yep. Sarah had laughed about the whole thing. And that's what Isaac means. So Isaac now grows up, and it's time for him to become an adult, uh, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Jewish people today, I believe, uh, have a bar mitzvah and become a son of the law. Uh, at about the age of 12 or 13. Right. Yeah. And so that was, so Abraham has a boy that's reached the age of maturity in a sense. And God says to Abraham, okay, I want him back. What? I want him back. Take him, take him where I show you. I, I want you to, to slay him and send him up to me in smoke. I want him to be a burnt offering. This is in Genesis chapter 22. Well, I don't know what's going through Abraham's mind, but I know what would have gone through my mind. This is insane. I mean, I've waited 25 years for the promised son, mm-hmm. and now he's come to the point where he can really step out and begin to, you know, function as a, an adult, mm-hmm. or at least the son of the law. And you want me to kill him? Mm. This doesn't make any sense to me. I'm sure Abraham must have had a wrestling match in his mind. Oh, yeah. Oh, can you imagine? So, but nope. Abraham believed God, and he was going to act in faith, and he, he believed. And we didn't know this from Genesis. We know it from Paul's writing in chapter 4 of Romans, that Abraham believed he'd get the child back. He would kill him, and God would raise him from the dead. Mm. That was what Abraham believed was going to happen. And so he takes his son to the place God appointed. God said, don't, don't. Get away from home. Uh, you you follow me. I'm going to take you to the mountain where I want you to offer him up to me. And he takes him to Mount Moriah, takes him to the to the region of Moriah, and on the on the mountaintop he builds an altar, which by the way the boy carried up there for him on his back the wood. Mm. He puts the boy down, straps him to the altar, raises the knife, and about to take his son's life, and he stopped. And God says, "Nope, don't do it." I, that's far enough. I wanted to test your faith. You you prove faithful. Take the boy off. I'm giving him back to you. Mm. I'm giving him back to you. So he spared the boy's life on Mount Moriah. But he did not ask. God demanded a sacrifice. And there was a ram caught in the bushes. Mm-hmm. And he takes Abraham takes the ram. And he puts him in the place of Isaac. And he kills the lamb instead of his son. 
and he offers him to God. And God's pleased. He, he accepts the lamb. Abraham gives names to most places that have significance. So they be remembered. And he called this mountain the Mount of My Provision mm. because God provided that ram in the place of his son. Right. Now it's a thousand years later. Israel's come out of Egypt after they've been there for 400 years as slaves. They're in the promised land. They've been chastised by being exiled for 70 years to Babylon. And time's gone on. And now they are... Uh, uh, they are you know, uh, well, no, in fact, I'm ahead of my story. No, this is the year 1000, so they haven't even been exiled yet. And David's been the great king, and he extends Israel's borders to their widest point, and he has a son who's fabulous. The uh, wisdom of Solomon is legendary. And, mm. and God comes to Solomon, he says, uh, I wouldn't let Abraham, I wouldn't let David build my temple because he was a man of blood, but I'm, you're going to build a temple because you're a man full of wisdom. Mm. And, uh, I want you to build it on Mount Moriah. He builds a temple where God plans to live. I mean, that's a symbol of a temple. It's God's dwelling place. I'm going to, you build it on that mountain where Abraham, where I spared Abraham's son. Yep. The Mount of my provision. Right. And do you know who died there eventually? And there was no lamb substitute for him? Jesus. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus died at the place where God spared Abraham's son. He was his provision. I am persuaded that all of our churches in this country, and it was true of the one I served, if we really trust the provision of God, we glorify him. Absolutely. And and he would be seen for who he really is. Absolutely. Well, that's an amazing, that's a powerful way to end this week's episode. Um, so, wow, uh, that was amazing. But I want to I want to take a moment and thank everybody for uh, for joining us today on Signpost and uh, on behalf of my dad and myself. And I want to welcome you to come to PastorBoylan.com to find out more about what we're what's happening with us. And uh, for anybody who's looking for something to do next weekend on a week from this episode on Saturday, the 23rd, you can come. Join me at uh, Barnes & Nobles in Millbury, Massachusetts. I'll be hosting a young adult writing panel uh, with several young adult writers from the area. It'll be a whole day of games and giveaways at Barnes & Nobles to celebrate Teen Reading Week. So if you have any young people in your household who are looking for something to do on a Saturday afternoon in the fall, come on by. But thank you again for joining us on Signposts. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.